Shut up and sit down. You know that little music scratch thing they used to do in the eighties with the with the thing, you know, with the record. I wiggle. <laughs> I have some kind of child, yeah, the the vinyl scratch. I have some kind of childhood flashback, and I wiggle <laughs> every single time it happens. Do a little intro, okay? So um, we're gonna do a rise table tonight. So I hope you I hope you guys brought some questions, um, uh, and. Uh, we're going to get started, and um, I've been working on my Big Bang today, and um, I broke 17K, and I counted my plot points. I have 136 plot points, and I just finished plot 22. Point, plot point 22. So, I'm pretty excited. Um, I'm feeling pretty good about it, and it's really weird not being able to discuss the details. So, I'm going to put put Jilly on the air and we're going to get started and she wants to talk about something as we, as we come out of the gate so here we go and on that's averaging um I'm basically averaging around 750 777 words per per plot point so based on that ish let's do 750 because it'll it'll vary right times 136 plot points that puts me at 102,000 words and my goal is 100 so I'm feeling pretty good nice yeah that's great and for those of you who are participating in the quantum bang and you're on the quantum bang site already um I am doing um a um a bang blog and uh Turtle's doing one, uh, my, my red turtle, and Jilly is doing one, and um, I hope the rest of you will come do them with us, and so we can just kind of talk about our stuff. Keep each other company. I mean, that is yeah. one of the hard things about a bang over rough trade. Rough trade is a different kind of hard. They, they each have their own challenges, and a bang is different, diff, diff, more is different from rough trade in that you're you're more isolated in your process a little bit than than maybe people are in rough trade and mm-hmm. some people that works really well for but some people it doesn't like you know we've talked about the writer community and how motivating that can be and so kind of doing these mini blogs and participating in the forum and doing the check-ins and stuff th- that's not really about you know the check-ins are about trying to help with motivation. Uh, and towards the end of the check-ins, it's about trying to let us know how many people will actually cross the finish line. But earlier in the cycle, it's more about keeping keep people motivated. So, um, For me, I think it, it boils down to accountability. Yeah. <laughs> I'm accounting for myself. You see me over here doing Yeah. Because <laughs> it, is, it is a long process. Um and um, if in whatever way something like that will help you, if it helps you to be interacting with other writers, 
come you could just come talk, but you could do this blog thing if it's about if it helps you to stay accountable to post periodically. You know, just you got to figure out what you've you got to figure out what's what's good for you to keep you moving. So, um, but you do have to be signed in to see this and participate because it's about the people in the in the challenge participating, interacting with each other. Um, so if if you get to the site and go, where do I go? Log in. And if you get there and you go, but I haven't signed up, well, sign up. I'm processing, you know, sign up pretty quickly so you won't have to wait long to get your credentials. Um, anyway, there's something that kind of has been on my mind. It, it, it's a little bit something that kind of came up in a funny way again. We've talked about this in piecemeal. Um, a little bit like we talked about bad habits you pick up from, you know, other writers. And um, we've talked about um, just – We've talked about we've talked about writers. You know, most writers read, um, but I would say that writer most writers that I've ever talked to pick up more from the stuff they read than they ever did from a book or a class. That you absorb more from the stuff you read, in terms of writing basics and like rhythm and flow and and structure that we absorb as much of that kind of by exposure um, as probably more so than we do through any kind of formalized teaching. Um, And I would say it's not uncommon, and you might be able to speak to this more um, precisely, but I would say it's not uncommon for writers, for professional writers to publish first and then um, use books and classes and stuff to hone their skills. Now, some writers, of course, a lot of people take English classes in college, but specifically to, like, they'll publish and then they'll want to refine their craft more, and that's when they really start delving into books and things. Um, it, it boils down to an issue of control. Um, because if you go into the publishing experience and you don't have a lot of editing knowledge and your craft knowledge is um, below what it should be, um, and I can speak to this from experience, um, when I first published, I took um, literature classes in college. I took, of course, English and AP English, you know, in high school, but I didn't take creative writing classes and um, because I didn't want anybody trying to structure my creativity. And I even mm-hmm. discussed it with several professors and, you know, shared my writing with them and those. So they're like, you don't need us. What you need is this. And, you know, I got resources and stuff like that because that really wasn't what I needed. Um, but the first time I published, I didn't know how to edit. When I got mm-hmm. my edit, they sent me a copy of my book in the mail, and it had all this – it had hieroglyphics written all over it. And I was like <laughs> – I called my agent, and I was like, um, I got my edits. And she says, are you upset? Were they terrible? They shouldn't be terrible because your book was great. I said, well, thank you. Um, I don't understand them. And she said, what? I said, I don't yeah, know what, what, what to do with them. I what is the code? All these, I don't understand. They got symbols, I said, yeah. I, don't, I don't understand shorthand. I don't understand what this is. And she said, oh, honey, go to the bookstore and pick up a copy of the, of the Chicago Style Manual. And there will be in there a chart to tell you what each of the symbols mean. So you'll know what to do based on the editing language. I had no idea. 
I had none. Yeah. So I go to um, the bookstore with my husband, and um, I find a Chicago-style manual. It is outrageously expensive, and um, I buy it. I still have it. It's currently sitting on my desk. Um, I never did buy a new edition. I think that I'm going to just stick with that one. I'm an old lady. I'm going to stick with the old version. Anyways, um, and if I need help with a modern thing, I just go online. <laughs> I don't I don't need to buy a new version. Anyways, um and I figured it out and I did my edits and um then I made a copy of my edits at, at it was a Kinkos at the time, but Kinkos doesn't even exist anymore. Um I remember going to Kinkos with my manuscript and um the girl behind the counter asked me because, you know, there were copyright issues. And I said, well, this is my book, so there's no, you know, copyright issue or anything. And she said, what I was doing, and I said, well, my, my book's being published by, insert New York publishing house. And um, I, um, I, I've done my edits, but I'm worried it might get lost <laughs> in the mail. So I want to make a copy of it just in case. And she said, well, that's a really good idea. <laughs> so I did that. And then I went to um, I went to uh, FedEx or UPS and sent it so I could track it because I was just very nervous about the whole thing. I was very nervous about the whole thing, and um, and it happened. And then a few months after that, I got my book cover, and then I got my books, and it was like crazy. And my mom still fronts my books in the bookstore whenever she sees them. Um, it's really weird. Uh, but I didn't know what I was doing, and it made me very uncomfortable. And I think a lot of professional writers um, go down that path, and then like, oh shit, yeah. I need to learn everything I possibly can about the process because I feel like I'm not in any control whatsoever. All right, I think that most of the writers that I've talked to who have been published, uh, not all, but most of them had never taken any formalized training about specifically like about how to write a book or how to. How to you know they didn't they didn't study narrative structure or anything like that, they just wrote a book, um, and they picked up their skills from reading, and then they got published, and then they went holy crap I need to learn a bunch of shit, and then they started reading and being able to put language to what they were doing, but when you if that method of learning how to write which is to read. Will serve will serve you well, unless you read a lot of newbie amateur writers. Now, this was probably not a big problem until two things: one is the advent of fandom as a major source of reading, and two, the advent of self-publication as a as a major source of publishing. And yeah, the um, the internet is a is a big problem. The internet, yeah, because I mean, I'm not saying I'm I'm not I'm not dissing all self-published books, okay? But some people who self-publish have an editor, and some people don't, and there is no gateway on there's no there's no gate there's no quality gate on self-publishing, so a lot of do their own thing and put it out there. Some of it is absolute is absolutely a nightmare from a grammar perspective. And, and actually, not just in grammar, not just about grammar, but I mean, just in general, plot flow, narrative structure. I mean, all of, a lot of the basics are just not there. Somebody wanted to write a book, they weren't getting accepted, and then some people just don't want to deal with a the publisher. They hire their own editor. They're very successful self-publishing, and, and their the quality of their crap books are great. But you don't know what you're getting, and you don't know unless someone you know been a long time self-pub person. 
all you might there's a solid chance you're getting an amateur writer who doesn't have an editor when you're reading a self-published novel. Um, and there's a solid chance. Now, I think a lot of people who write fan fiction, um, we, we've talked about this. There's a lot of people who are who are in writing in some fashion in their craft, whether they're technical writers or editors or professional writers. But there are, you know, as many who are amateur writers. So what I see happen, and one of the things that I, I've seen repeatedly is that I see people picking up bad habits from what they read instead of good habits from what they read. So instead of picking up, I mean, if you read nothing but Stephen King and then you decided to go out and write a, a romance novel and nothing you had ever read in your life was anything but Stephen King and um, and you had never taken a class on craft, your, your, your romance is going to feel, have that kind of rhythm that a Stephen King novel has until you learn to develop your own voice. Because you're going to have picked up whether you intend to or not. This is the difference between instinctual and instinctive. Instinctual are things that are learned that become automatic. And you learn it by reading it. You read it over and over and over again, how he, his narrative structure and his word choice. And you're going to start to do that until you develop your own style, which is fine. That's how writers learn. It's how they grow, whatever. But it's just something to bear in mind as a fan fiction writer if you are reading a lot of fan fiction, or specifically if you're in a one, only one or two fandoms, that you might be picking up bad habits from your fandom. And Karen and I were talking the other day, is like somebody had asked for help um, with something, and they were being vague about how they, what they were asking, because they you know, um, didn't want to talk on Facebook about, too specific about their story. And just based upon the bad habits I saw in the, the, the kind of the bad habit, I was able to guess what fandom, even though they didn't reveal the fandom, I was able to guess the fandom because I see that bad habit in that fandom. Now I'm not a hundred percent sure that, that that's the thing, but it's just certain fandoms have developed through viral behavior, certain bad habits in their craft. And some people emulate it on purpose and some people emulate it accidentally. And the only thing, and the reason I want to start the show with this is to kind of talk about the idea of when you're reading fan fiction, especially if you read a lot of fan fiction, I read a ton, so I'm kid would not be judging anybody for how much fan fiction they read. You have to be um, vigilant about what is seeping into your brain. Um, you know, are you tempted, NCIS readers, to start writing one-sided phone conversations? You picked that up from reading other people doing it, and then you thought it, it stuck in your brain as a way to write a phone conversation, and then you did it. And lots of uh, fandoms have quirks that you see pretty much only in that fandom unless an author expands out into another fandom, and often those behaviors don't catch on in this other fandom. So anyway... Um, it's just a kind of a – if you go to any kind of fandom writing group, they're going to encourage you to do whatever you want. Uh, I just – I can't do that. I can't, I can't encourage people to do – to ignore the fundamentals so that – and use bad craft in the interest of, I don't know, getting a story written. That's just crazy cake. So That comes down to greed, yeah. I think. They're, they're so greedy, they don't want to wait. They don't want to wait for you to um, improve 
They just want it now, 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 now. They want quantity over quality every single time. Right. They just want Um, more. They don't care how good it is. I had a lot of writers in meat space in my life. Um, it's so weird calling it meat space. That's just, I need a, I need a new term for that. Um, in real life, but that's not. But that's kind of insulting to my online life. See, it, it's just a, it's a quandary. I have a quandary. Okay, so and I have we'll these writers corporeal. moving around in my corporeal. corporeal space. Um, <laughs> in my in my corporeal space, in my physical space, and I encounter very very young writers, and um, they kind of like you know, kind of kind of gather around me like tribbles sometimes um and because i i do have um a reputation in my area um for for being someone who's very open to to talking to new writers and i've done you know seminars and stuff at various places and um i encountered um about this about about a year there was a a young a young woman who was who was writing um and uh, she ended up in one of our groups, and I was talking about GMC. And I must have spent an hour discussing GMC. And we go on break to get some coffee, and um, she takes me, she comes up to me, and she says, what are you talking about? I said, what do you mean? She says, what does GMC stand for? <sighs> and I realized she waited she waited that long to ask you. She wouldn't have understood any any part of that conversation. Well, she didn't want to sound. She didn't want to ask in front of the whole group because she didn't want to. I mean, I would have I would have been embarrassed to ask in front of the whole group when the whole group appeared to know what I was talking about and she didn't. You know, mm-hmm. it, 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 and honestly, GMC is a very fundamental part of writing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And. Um, which stands for goals, motivation, and characterization. <laughs> conflict. 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 See, I fucked it up. Conflict. Goals, motivation, and conflict. And that's ba- it's about characterization. That's what I was going to get at. It's about your character's goals, motivations, and conflicts. Um, and the, this is the fundamental part of your novel. Um, so, yeah, she didn't know um, what it stood for. And so I told her, and she went, oh, like a light bulb went off over her head because suddenly I guess everything I'd said for the past hour, me and my friend who were having the, the conversation suddenly made sense to her. <laughs> but it did teach me a very valuable lesson is when we, we have people in the group who aren't, who are new, we don't need to take it at face value that they're going to understand immediately what we're talking about. So at some point I really should have said goals, motivations, and conflicts. Probably near the beginning. <laughs> so it taught me something. Um, and, you know, because we were having a big conversation about characterization and um, across different genres and, um, and, and how GMC can, can shape your character differently in, say, an action-adventure versus a romance novel versus an urban fantasy. You know, so, um, and a lot of times across genres, um, the uh, there's an imbalance between your goals, motivations, and conflicts, depending on the genre. Like, I think a lot of times in a romance novel, it, it does tend to be more motivation-focused. Um, 
Whereas mm-hmm. in an action adventure, it's more goals and and conflicts. Um, and that's when you come into a situation where your character is being spurred immediately and often by external motivators, like like mm-hmm. like Harry Potter. He doesn't have time to to develop his own motivations because the entire world is piling on him at every opportunity, which creates a helplessness in your character. So, anyways, we were talking about that, and so I, I'm thinking to myself, I'm an idiot. I should have. <laughs> I did. I did not frame that conversation correctly. Um. And so it it so it, it it taught me something. And a lot of times, I think on the podcast we do use terms that listeners might not understand. But the difference is, is that you guys can pause the podcast, get on Google, look that shit up. She couldn't. <laughs> right. Like, I guess she could have been over there on her phone, you know. <laughs> but actually, if you, I think if you Google what is GMC, you aren't going to get um, what you think you're going to get. You're not going to get. Yeah, you're you're not going to get anything. But although, if you what is GMC writing, that should solve it. Yeah, that solves it. But I mean, you have to put yeah. an extra keyword in there. Otherwise, you're just going to get General Motors. Um, but you know, it, it in terms of the, you do eventually if you want to like, like I think grow your craft because and and this whole this whole thing about the published novel thing is once you've published a really big piece of fan fiction you've worked through, I mean, you're kind of there, right? It's time to start. And if you want to keep going with that and you like writing and you want to keep writing, it's time to start investing in, um, this is my opinion, um, in knowing your craft a little bit better, knowing more about it. And I'm not saying, you know, go out and just do nothing but read books, but take on new information and incorporate it as you can. And, but if there's just this, this thing, you've got to be just, if you're going to be in fandom and you're going to read it is you've got to be, you know, be mad. I'm moody. It's like that constant vigilance thing. You've got to be careful about bad habits. You can pick up reading in your fandom. Cause it's not just one or two writers sometimes in fandoms. It can be, it can be dozens and dozens and dozens of them in a big fandom doing the same thing. Um, I'll give you an example from way back when. Um, I think that there, like when I was in Exile fandom, this was this was not like the super early days of fandom, but it was kind of early days ish on the internet with fandom. I mean, we're still we're we're kind of away from, we're away from Usenet on the Yahoo group, so there weren't a whole lot of websites and stuff. Anyway, so there's a bunch of of, of women writing slash fic who have have haven't got much clue about male anatomy. Okay, and someone, some BNF somewhere, I would guess, uh, misspelled prostate, prostate on a regular basis, and they spelled it prostrate. Um, there was a fucking epidemic in X Files at the time I started writing in it of people spelling prostate, prostrate. Uh, you could not get people to stop, um, and it, it it was so out of proportion compared to um, anything else I've ever seen in fandom that I can only assume. People were learning this word and learning about male anatomy and learning about sex through, you know, male-male sex, specifically anal sex, through reading um, fan fiction. And so that's where you started seeing – we saw there was also this epidemic of, like, prostates described as nubbins or buttons, and um, they were being pinched a lot. There was a lot of pinching of prostates going on. Um, (laughs) 
like but it was a clip it, on the inside. Right, exactly. They, they, that's exactly that's exactly how they're writing about it. Like it was a clip up, up the ass. So anyway, so that was like it was it was this viral this viral weirdness, and you'd get new writers coming in using prostrate instead of prostate. And I know that's an easy typo to make, but the number of people who did it every single instance in their story it was, was a typo. It was it wasn't a typo. It's like they thought this was what they thought they were supposed to do. Um, in NCIS, you have the one-sided phone conversation that that started there. That bizarreness started there. There's dozens of writers who do it. I see new writers picking it up. Um, Y'all um, stop it. Yeah, stop it. Uh, but you know, it's, it's some. I think some fandoms are a little bit more insulated from this kind of crazy behavior, uh, but. You know, if you're if you're reading the fandom enough, you start to see like strange formatting things. Um, I've seen fandoms where they have like a, a funny formatting thing, and I'll see like that's a very bizarre way to format something in their story. And then I'll see, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens, or maybe even hundreds of writers doing it. Um, Harry Potter um, on fanfiction.net is the the king fandom of bizarre chapter breaks. Not chapter scene breaks, the scene break markers. Utterly bizarre. <sighs> People just they come into Harry Potter and they think they need to make up their version of the clever um, scene break marker that takes that scrolls on the page like eight times or something or some weird combination of their title and their author name or their pairing or their ship or whatever. Um, but you see that more in Harry Potter to me than I've seen in any other fandom. Now, I see people who, like, write in both. They'll take that behavior elsewhere and make the behavior viral in another fandom. Um, oh, MCU is, like, the king fandom to me for unnecessary points of view. Um, it's like they need every – it's like every Avenger needs a point of view in the story. And it's not – like I said, it's and not Jarvis, one or two things. So people, and Jarvis and Dummy. And it's like people read – um, a story, a beloved story, and it has everybody's got a point of view, and so they write their story, and everybody has a point of view. Um, it's not good craft. It's not, in general, it's not a good idea. Now, there are times when if you want a lot of points of view, there's ways to, to work to that, but the question is, is it necessary? Um, you know, prostrates and, nub, you know, none of that's necessary, right? Um, None of these shenanigans are necessary. So it's kind of a – when you get into multiple points of view, you're getting more into um, there might be a reason to do it, but you would need to have a different kind of story structure. But generally, it's just not a good idea to have a, have a ton of point of view. So anyway, so I it had just come up repeatedly over the last few weeks. It's like you've got – I'm reading something, and I go, man, I have seen this from 50 other authors in your fandom you guys are just spreading this like a virus. You need to stop. You know, I can't say that to any individual author because I wouldn't, but I can say it to you guys. Stop. <laughs> if, if you see something you've never seen before in a fandom, stop and stop and ask, how come I've never seen this before? Is this really a good idea for me to do? Because you don't want to be absorbing bad things like we absorb the good things because this is like this is an instinctual learning, right? You're you're picking it up without thinking about it until you start to do it too. So just you know, take care of your mind palace. Don't let it get cluttered with prostrates and nubbins and you know ten points of view and um, let me just one side phone that. conversation. Just just don't put that in there. Yeah, 
bag craft. If you have to frame your flashback with the words flashback, you don't need to be writing a flashback. If you have to label your POV shifts to make sure your reader knows what POV you're in, you need to stay your ass in one POV until you figure that out. I'm just saying. <laughs> it's very important that you um, look. You shouldn't learn to drive a- in a Ferrari, okay? Because what happens is, is if you ever want to write a, pro- it, it's not just about. It's not just about if you because some of the stuff I say, you know, I would then follow on and say. If you ever want to be a professional writer, you're going to have to shake off right. these bad habits. But it's not just about going professional. It's if you want to be a good writer, you don't want to pick up habits that are that are unique to one fandom's bad habits because you just I don't know, just don't do it. Because if you're going to do it, do it well. I don't have any kind of patience for, you know, I'm not. If you just want to write quickly and get it out there and get as much feedback as you can to validate you i'm not talking to you we've established those boundaries on the podcast in the past (laughs) but it probably bears repeating that if that's your jam you do you but this is a craft show and we're not going to talk about how to have bad craft (laughs) on purpose on purpose yeah now i'm not saying i'm perfect and and neither is jilly what we are saying is, is that we strive to do better out of the gate and we strive not to pick up bad habits. And we strive to be better writers every single day. I am a better mm-hmm. writer today than I was eight years ago. If you look at some of my older fan fiction, you can see that. I see it. I don't know how you could possibly miss it. Um, my very first published book. I love it because it's my very first published book. But I would, if given an opportunity, love to do a second edition and rewrite that motherfucker because it needs it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm just saying that you grow and you change and you become better and that is the goal. I never want to have a day in my life where I don't learn something new. Right. I don't either. Which is why I don't mind, you know, people people can get so uptight about being wrong, you know? Um if I'm wrong about something it well, it depends on who I'm wrong. I mean, if it's somebody I hate pointing out that I'm wrong, it's not that me being wrong is going to bug me. It's who it's coming from. Um, right, right. I know. But I, know. I don't mind being wrong because I don't mind learning. It's like, oh, okay, cool. I learned something new. Um, but, you know, it just I, – I always want to be better. And I know I'm never going to be a perfect writer. If you're When you sit down to start writing, that's a truth that you have to accept from the jump. It, and if you can't get past the fact that there's no chance in hell of ever being perfect, then it's not for you because your perfectionism will make you crazy. I'm a perfectionist, and if I couldn't get past that um, – if I couldn't – when I have that realization that I'm never going to be a perfect writer – if I couldn't deal with and absorb that and take that on board and accept it, then I would have needed to stop writing because those two things are, you cannot, if you cannot accept the lack of perfection, then you're just going to frustrate yourself. So there's no such thing as a perfect writer. And so I hope that every story 
gets better and better than the one before. And not that doesn't always happen because some ideas just don't come out. Some ideas are just like meh. You feel kind of in yeah. about them, but you finish them up and you post them anyway. Um, but I hope that I'm a better writer from story to story, even if the stories themselves aren't necessarily better, one, one on top <laughs> of the other. Because I do keep But sometimes you do, do something learning. and you're like, hell yeah, I nailed yeah. that shit. <laughs> and that's a great moment to have. Ellie has a question. So what do you do when you're posting a work in progress? What to do? What do you do in chapter nine when you realize you have to change something in chapters three through five because you need to contradict yourself otherwise? You know what? Um, there have been times, um, like you know, like for example, Sentinels of Atlantis, where I had to go back and make a correction in an episode because I wrote something in it that wasn't in my plot that I shouldn't have done. Um, and I just went back and corrected it because that's my shit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's if, what, I, that's what I, if I was posting a work in progress and I was posting it by the chapters and I got to chapter nine and I've done something in chapters three through five or three through eight or one through eight that fucks up my chapter nine, I'd make a decision. Do I fix chapter nine or do I go or do I like the new elements so much that I go back and correct the other ones, and then I would do it. And if I did it, when I posted chapter nine, I would let my readers know that I've made a change, and they'll need to go read, they'll need to start over, <laughs> depending on how much of a change I made. Or I would just point the change out and say, I did this originally in chapter three, I've changed it to this, you can go read it or not, but I would not um, apologize for it. And I would not um, offer any explanation beyond the fact that this is what I did because it's my shit and I'll do what I want. Yeah. And I, I've seen people go to some crazy lengths to, to for the next chapter of a work in progress because they didn't feel like they could go back and fix it, correct it. Um, and I, I would just, if it were me, I would fix whatever the hell I need to fix. Um, and like, you know, just do exactly what Kira said, tell people, Hey, I changed this such is life. That's the, and if people can't deal with it and if they bitch, that's the, that's the risk of reading a work in progress in my opinion, you know, is that you, the author may have to go change shit. But what I would be careful about is changing a pairing. Um, I would never change a pairing in a work in progress. If I was nine chapters in, if I'd already established a pairing, I would not bait and switch on my readers. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Unless, unless it was a minor pairing, like the background pairing. Right. Yeah, I need this person to not be in a relationship, so I'm putting the person they were with with somebody else and making them single. You know, but it, if it's a background pairing, you know, I wouldn't. I, I would do what I wanted with it, but the main pairing and story, um, I, yeah, I wouldn't change those. Because that's just, you know, that's just true. I was reading this work in progress once um, where the person had just said that they were not, and I actually, I don't usually read works in progress. We know this. We've talked about it. But um, I was so intrigued by the, the story idea um, that I started reading it, and there was no pairing disclosed. And then all of a sudden she says um, in one story, she goes, I'm waffling on the pairing, um, but I think, you know, it's going to be 
this, which is my, you know, my normal OTP is this, but I think the chemistry for this other pairing is really good. So it's in between two of these, and she puts up a poll, and she asks her readers to vote. Hmm. And she was right, absolutely right, about the chemistry between this, this, uh, this two people, that she had written just a fuck ton of chemistry between them. I mean, it isn't even something I shipped, and I was like, yes, that's what you need to write. I didn't respond to that, but that's what all of the other readers said, is yes, yes, write this rare pair, because you know, we don't even care that I don't normally, wouldn't even normally read that pair, and you've got so much chemistry between them that we need, you know, that's what it needs to be. So almost universally, it's like 95% of people who responded to her said, write this pairing. So she was like super excited and goes down this path. Like two chapters later, she says, I just can't, you know, I can't stray away from my OTP. It's just too difficult. So, you know, sorry to everybody who voted. And then she had the pair break up so they could get together with the other guy. Mm. And I was just like, this is why I don't read whips. This is why I don't read them. <laughs> but on the other hand, that for, for me as a reader, that was just like, what the fuck? But, there were several what the fucks in there. It's like I would never poll for a pairing. I'd never poll. I mean, I might poll for like, I don't know, a name or something, but I would not poll for pairing or anything like that. That's crazy. Um, she wanted to make a change. So fine. She makes a change. That's what she, I think that I think as a writer, I think that's what she should do as a reader. That was really fucking irritating. And I stopped reading the story, not because I didn't like that OTP, but by, by, but by the way she implemented it, instead of going back and fixing the pairing from the jump, she just wrote all this chemistry and great pairing that you're really excited about and then broke them up because she said, I just can't violate my OTP anymore. I was like, I can't deal. So on the one side, author, do what you want, do what serves your story. But I think what would have served her story better was for her to write that pairing from the beginning, even if she had to go back and edit rather than yeah. to what she did felt like a bait and switch. Now, Claire mentioned something about um, like not liking something in a, something normally, but liking it when it's done well. And I would say that almost everything I dislike, there's an exception where I like it. Because if somebody does something really well, the, the things you don't like just sort of fade away. Like, I cannot tell you how many, I don't like, we've talked about, I don't like present tense stories. I cannot tell you how many exceptions to that rule there are. Sometimes I get into a story and I just don't care that it's in present tense. It's just the writing is so good that the verbs just start to not matter to me as much as the story I'm really There's enjoying. There's that one NCIS fic that, like that. I was like, why am I reading this? I don't even read present tense. It makes me nervous. It makes, oh, wow, this is so good. I hate you, author. <laughs> <laughs> Making me really you, just, nervous. you just go through almost not not anything but almost anything if somebody just handles whatever whether it's the trope or the pairing or um i read a pairing once i was like that doesn't make any sense to me and i read this story and i was like and i could tell that it was the skill of the author and the just it just it was so deaf the way she handled that story and I knew there was no point in me looking for that pairing <laughs> from anybody else because it's just it was it's, she took something that seemed implausible and made it great, and that's that's like that's that's author gift. That is not the pairing, okay? So when I see something that is exceptional, that is an exception to my like you know, like this is an exception to the tropes I like or whatever, 
and I find it to be exceptional. Uh, that, that's author gift. And I think that that's wonderful and I honor that and I don't go looking for that, you know, somewhere else because it was this person's gift that made that, that enjoyment possible. So what was the pairing? Do you mind saying? Uh, it was, uh, Styles Jackson. Oh. I know, right? Really? Yeah, so, there you go. <laughs> there we go. I know. Everybody's going, what? <laughs> it was really good. Um, so there you go. I agree. You probably did find the diamond. I don't know. <laughs> You're going, what? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, you found the diamond. The chat, I mean, the chat, the chat room's all going, huh? <laughs> so it, 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 but I mean, it's like, it's also, it's like the amnesia thing. It's like, I cannot stand that trope, but. You know, every word for the blue moon, there's someone who does something with an amnesia story that I'm just like blown away by. And it's, it doesn't mean I'm going to start reading amnesia stories. I might start reading that author <laughs> because it ain't the trope that's drawing me in. It's an author who can handle that trope in a way that I find appealing. I have an idea for kind of, well, it's like, it's canon amnesia. It's one where John, um, uh, during the first suicide run, instead of Caldwell catching him, um, he ascends during the during the, the nuclear explosion, and um, he doesn't want to be ascended. It's the last fucking thing he wants, and so he comes back. He deascends himself, um, and he lands on Atlantis, but he doesn't remember anything. Um, and, but the only thing the only thing he knows is that he can trust Rodney, and that's the only thing he's got. And so, um, when everybody's trying to pull at him, and you know, because this is their second ascended person to come back, and you know, and and Rodney's basically the only thing that he trusts. And Rodney makes the decision to take John back to Earth and leave the program. Because they don't know if John's going to get his memories back, and he doesn't think it's safe for John to be on the city. And, um, but I've, I've I've never written it because I don't really know what to do with it. John gets his memories back eventually, um, in the in the plot, but I haven't really um, uh, figured out what I wanted to do with it. I just had this idea once when I was watching one of the episodes where Daniel Jackson got you know uh, ascended and came back. Mhm. And so I, I was just adding this idea. idea. I think that'd be fascinating to see. Um, hmm. Because I mean, I I don't think I've ever had a really strong plot bunny around amnesia, and I, I think it's because it's a trope that just I don't. I couldn't even tell you why. I think it probably was a bunch of romance novels in the '80s where people were probably that, or that, that did it to me. Yeah, because I, I don't think I well I watched soaps for a little while, but I wasn't really really into them. But they were trope the amnesia trope was huge in the eighties. <laughs> it just was a, it was massive, um, and there's so many people getting together around you know not having not knowing who they were, which <laughs> just whatever. Um, and I so I think I developed just a, just a deep abiding dislike for the the trope. So I don't think I've ever had a, an amnesia bunny. I, at least not that I can recall. Um, because my brain just throws up a barrier around it. 
You know, it's like, no, no. But it used to do that with time travel, too, so whatever. <laughs> you know, I, no, there is one really good amnesia fic in the Stargate fandom where um, Rodney and John were a couple, and they um, – it's a it's a AU fic. There, um, there's no Stargate, or if there is, they don't know about it. And Rodney um, kind of has a he. It's not a head injury, but he disassociates, and um, because he's really deeply unhappy and stressed out doing what he's doing, and when when he's found, he doesn't know anything about himself. He doesn't know anything. Um, and, uh, but if I know who he is and, you know, John and him have broken up, but he doesn't tell Rodney that they used to be a couple. Um, and, um, Rodney slowly falls in love with John again. And, um, then he falls in love with his music and he never really gets back everything he lost, but they build something new together and it's, it's beautiful. And I forget the name of it. Um, but what it did do was introduce me to the Goldberg variations because there's a point where Rodney is going through his home and looking at all these pictures of people. And, um, he puts on the Goldberg variations and he listens to the whole thing. And I was like, I have to go, I have to go get that. So I went and I found it. And then I listen to the whole thing. <laughs> and it ends with with um, the old Rodney had bought John a plane. And so John takes Rodney up in the plane. And then Rodney writes a symphony about flight as a love letter to John. And it is beautiful. And I wow. can't remember the name of it. I can't remember the name of it. And I want to because I want to put it on my rack for tomorrow. So now I have to figure out what it was. So if you know what it was, Willow. <laughs> yeah, I'll put the sick ninjas in chat. So she might, she might know. She is the sick ninja. There used to be this um, live journal group um, for, for finding thick. And if you put a, quest, or a question up nine times out of ten, um, Dacus with Gary would be along the <laughs> to give you an answer. That <laughs> was like she's a total thick ninja too. But um, it's actually written by somebody very popular in the Stargate fandom, and it, it has just completely left my brain. It'll probably occur to you like right before you're going to sleep tonight, or in the shower, or something. Um, if anybody else has questions, we'll keep yapping until we get another question. <sighs> But when you find, by the way, when you find something that is outside your comfort zone or outside your normal likes or whatever, um, it just draws you in and goes, yes, that was everything. You know, those are really, that's really precious because you have, um, that's just, that's, that's an author just. Uh, that author gift just pulled you in and helped you expand your horizons as a reader. And I just, I love, I actually love finding stories that are um, outside of what I usually like. It's like, oh, I usually hate those tropes, but there it is. I'm all in for that. Um, the downside of that is then people want to start wrecking me stuff. 
uh, is like, oh, I can find you 10 other stories that you'll love with this trope. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, <laughs> I bet you you can't. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. I had this. I actually, um, we were. Um, I was bitching to my sister. I think it was last night. I posted on Facebook about it, but I didn't mention that my sister was the catalyst for this horrible moment. Um, there's someone who's been sending me a lot of wrecks lately, and I don't know. Sometimes people just do this, and I've been trying to get them to stop. It's been weeks of wrecks, and I've just been like, "Please stop," you know, kind of thing. Which uh, "please stop" apparently means slow down. Um, but I know she's a big fan of my work and she's trying to send me stuff. I don't know that she thinks I'm going to like, okay. Um, but one of the things is like a lot of the stories either I've seen before or they're by, you know, whatever in some fashion, like, you know, I'd say 80% I know at the jump, but no. Um, but so every single story she sent me though, and there's been dozens are to me from a craft perspective, they're awful. They're awful. And so I was just bitching about it. And I said, they have this woman, this fan of mine, she's just her taste in stories. Everything she sends me is terrible. My sister goes, well, she likes you. And I went, oh, I just, all of her taste is terrible and she likes me. Is there, does that mean I'm terrible? <laughs> it's just this weird right. thing, this weird thing rattling around in my head. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I'm having a moment. I'm having a moment and it's not a good moment. <laughs> But then I was like, it's a terrible oh, moment. I don't care. Even if, even if, even um, I just, I just have to, uh, there's false equivalencies. I hate them. So I'm not going to do it to myself. <laughs> Desert Poet and I found it. Um, I found it. I was on AO3 and I had, um, I'd put in Goldberg variations and I hit it just as she was putting it in the, um, in the chat room. It's called Undentified and it's by Fiercely Dreamed. Um, and it is 42. And I, Highly recommend it. If you go to her live journal, um, she's posted um, um, uh, some extras, including soundtrack notes and a cover and um, stuff like that. But on AO3, it has the three-part story, the the, the three parts of the story, um, and um, it is it is fantastic. And it is it is an amnesia fic, and but it's beautiful. It is completely beautiful it's one of the few amnesia fics that i read where i didn't finish i when i finished it i wasn't a frustrated pissed off mess so i highly recommend fiercely dreamed you won't regret it it's called undentified by fiercely dreamed and i'm gonna put it up on my facebook as my um my fanfic palooza recommendation for tomorrow okay new question from Ellie, when you need to have a character in a scene from a book, movie, or TV, okay, I think this means taking a canon scene. You need a canon scene to appear in your in your story. How do you approach it into in order to not just rewrite the whole thing verbatim? Take an alternate adding canon. Adding canon. Yeah. Content. Okay. That's, yeah. Um, usually, what I do is I. Um, there's sometimes you need to borrow. If I need to borrow more than a line or two, um, I don't think it's ever actually come up that I've needed more than that. A line or two is kind of where my my taking dialogue from canon kind of ends. And if there's long segments, I'll summarize it in the narrative. So, like, um, if I need to use that scene, 
um, I would summarize in the narrative and then have the part that I'm changing be the dialogue that I'm using. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, like, summarize the scene um, and then the parts that you actually put in dialogue. Um, Are the are the bits that are new your new parts, uh, and they can question, and you can actually restructure a scene because the thing is, conceivably, the scene there's something changing. So because things are changed, you could actually you could paraphrase to a degree, um, but if if your point of view character is the character who the change is happening around or whatever, um, they could ask the question in a different way or um, respond to something differently. And by generating a slightly different response, it can, you can have the information come out in a kind of way that feels organic. That is basically a paraphrasing of Canon. Usually those scenes tend to run longer than the Canon scene because you're basically putting in new reactions and stuff. Um, but a lot of times when I need to use canon scenes, I'm summarizing them and inserting, if I'm really trying to, um, like I use canon events in um, Catalyst, the canon events of catching um, uh, Hess in that first episode of um, Hawaii Five-0. Uh, and all of my dialogue scenes were in between canon scenes. So the canon scene would be summarized and then my scene would begin. That were, you know, I was plotting scenes between canon scenes as opposed to using any of those canon scenes. Now, it, it's a, it's difficult to tell how well someone who didn't know that episode would be able to follow it. But since the canon actions were not super critical to the story, I I didn't feel like it was a big deal that people might not know who, um, Hess or Wofat or um, I can't remember the name of the guy they arrested that they used to get leverage on. I can't remember his name. The guy that there's the guy that did an undercover sting with Kono in Canon. Um, I didn't think it was relevant to the story that readers know who he was. So, you know, it's kind of a it's kind of a juggling act when you need Canon elements to make sense of your story. I'm gonna be honest. I go out of my way to avoid needing Canon elements. I I I try not to need canon elements, but um, because I was setting up in that story, I was setting up Tony and C getting to know each other around the hunt for Victor Hess. Um, yeah. It was difficult to not leverage canon to a degree. So, but I had the thing is in that in that episode, I had Tony stepping all over Steve's investigation. So it wasn't it wasn't difficult to put scenes in where I summarized a little bit of canon that had happened and then give a whole new scene where Steve is like, "What are you doing here? Why are you here at all?" kind of thing. So um, I couldn't not use canon because it was Steve yeah. kind of getting his head out of his ass through the course of that investigation and Tony altering the investigation to a degree. So instead of relaying canon. I would summarize the bit of canon that had happened that I needed the reader to know about, and then I would give a new scene um, to 
you know, relay how the story is going to move forward and take the reader on without repeating the canon elements. You can fix canon without repeating canon. I, you know, for instance, if I was going to fix dead air, and I've done it a variety of ways already, um, if I was going to do a full-on dead air fix, um, I would start it in that moment when they admitted to Tony that they had not been listening to him. Um, but I wouldn't use their dialogue. I would just use his recognition. Okay, these motherfuckers left me in the field with no backup, looking for a fucking terrorist. And then everything after that moment is mine. It's all AU because I'm fixing it. And I have not used a single word of dialogue out of NCS to do it. NCIS to do it. Yeah. I mean, it depends upon what you mean by fixing canon. I, I don't know if you're talking about, so you use the word fixing, so I'm wondering if you're talking about your QB story. Um, if you could give a parallel situation or pick a scene in the fandom that's not the one you're writing in, maybe if that would be helpful. Would not choose to, that would be helpful so we can get an idea of what you mean by, you know, how. Because fixing canon, I mean, <laughs> I've seen people like write a dead air story and they start back at when the investigation began. And yeah, for somebody who hasn't seen dead air, I tend to try to make my stories comprehensible to people who haven't seen the episode. So I would at some point give a summary, you know, to summarize that they were looking for a domestic terrorist cell who had shot a a Navy officer live on the air on a radio show. And that covers a fuck ton of canon in like two sentences. Um, I the only time I, I think I've used the the actual dialogue from Dead Air was when I was doing a transcript. Um, and one story, at least one story, maybe two, I have a transcript mm-hmm. that's read back of that piece of dialogue. So that literal dialogue is useful for that. Um, but in general, I changed um, their words when I did um, Ascendant because I had to um, account for Tony being a guide and. Um, uh, gives being a, a, a dormant sentinel. Um, so it changed their conversation, and it should have. I mean, they were having a different mm-hmm. conversation about Tony than they did in canon, so I didn't need to worry about those elements there. Um, but the reason why is the same. They were bored. They were bored of listening to him. Yeah. <laughs> the character's point of view is that the character can testify later about what happened. Happened. Okay, Ellie says in the chat room, I think I'm telling it from another character's point of view so that the character can testify later about what happened. Um, well, if you're... If you're relaying, okay, so like let's say you're doing dead air, and let's say that Abby was listening, or let's say not even Abby, okay, let's look, let's do a dead air scenario, where um, like maybe an agent from Balboa's team is monitoring the feed and marking off because maybe maybe they've got some kind of urgency. On, well, it was urgent anyway, but let's say it's super urgent, and they're trying to mark off the voice samples 
to run voice recognition. And so maybe there's a junior agent or something who is marking off, doing the timestamps on the, on the audio so that they can be processing it as they go. Um, And that character is listening and you're telling the story. um, You're relaying dialogue I think that's what you're talking about. It's like he sees what's happened out in the field. He realizes they haven't heard. It's the, the events already happened. And then he's testifying to what happened in court. Would that be what you're talking about? Um, if so, if that is what you're talking about, is like this third party, you don't necessarily even have to be in, unless this other character is crucial to your story, you can still do that without being in his point of view. You just, it just, it just depends upon where you start your story. Because in that case, like let's say, um, let's say I was writing that story, but I didn't want to go too far back. I could actually start at the court case. And the audience learns about what happened in the episode. Actually, that's a great device for delivering information that doesn't feel like an info dump. And, um, but it doesn't have to be in his point of view. It could be in a main character's point of view. Tony could be, let's say, sitting in the gallery listening to this agent who broke the whole thing wide open testify about what he heard and what action he took. So it all depends upon what's more impactful for your story. Um, but in that case, in that kind of setting, you don't have to go through the agent hearing it. You could just start at the trial. But like I said, it all depends on what you're trying to do. It's one of those, it's one of those things that's difficult to answer without, without a plot. So uh, if you ever have a question like this and you don't want to reveal your plot, but you want us to kind of talk about it maybe on a writer's table, you can email one of us ahead of time because we're going to know what your plot is. There's there's no secrets from the admin. So um, give us a more detailed, (laughs) a more detailed question behind the scenes. And then we can, you know, change the name to protect. Yes. (laughs) The the innocent and the guilty and (laughs) everybody in between. Um, but yes, I think that, you know, honestly, if you write it from a third, from a third point of view, like outside looking from an audience point of view, like your character is, he's, he's present in the scene, but he doesn't have any lines. So he's a witness, um, writing from his point of view could be beneficial and could be powerful if he has a perspective on the events that neither one of your other characters have. Like, let me give you an example. The other day, I'm at the grocery store, and this man <clears throat> had his two-year-old, his toddler, two, three. I mean, I can't really tell. I don't have any kids. I mean, he's verbal, active, very verbal. Um, and from my point of view, I'm seeing this man and this kid, and the kid's kind of loud. Um, and he's kind of impatient. And the kid wants some candy, and the dad says, absolutely not. And the kid throws a fit. Well, from my point of view, they're both getting on my nerves, right? That's my point of view. Now, the dad's point of view, his kid probably needs a nap and throwing a fit because he's tired. The kid's point of view, dad's an asshole. All he wants is some candy. (laughs) 
So everybody in this situation has a different point of view. If your witness has a point of view that puts a different lighting on the scene. Julie had a really good example of this. Um, In um, Sin for the Man. Mm. Are you still there? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. So, now in canon, um, she kind of sets Tony up by by saying that he's not recommended for the Avengers. Um, it's some some slap ass psychology, right? Where Tony feels rejected, she feels like they're in power, but Alex takes one look at this and says, "This is just emotional manipulation bullshit." It is entirely different. He's offered something very powerful in this thing. He's called them out. Say, like, you know what? This is this is just absolute bullshit. What you're doing here, I know what you're doing, and it's bullshit. So he offered a different perspective on that situation, where that you never got in the movie, actually. They never point blank said that Shield was manipulating Tony to when they were when they were saying yes to Iron Man but no to Tony Stark. That's never explicitly said in the canon. Point of view of that situation made it perfectly clear that's what it was. And so yeah. Alex offered something very powerful to that. I mean, depending upon and also um point of view is very critical to um, yeah, I, right? I actually, I actually, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I actually pointed that out in both stories. Um, Alex is the one who confronted Nick Fury directly when the report was delivered. Dom yeah. sees the report when he's given the profiles of the team. It's in, it, it's in Tony Stark's psychological profile, and the fact yeah. that it was there was actually a red flag to Dom about about. Um, but we're in Tony Stark's point of view for that, so we don't see that Dom found that to be a red flag, that um, S.H.I.E.L.D. was using such manipulative tactics to secure its team members. Well, um, that's what stuck out for me was Alex and, and Fury in that scene. You know, and Alex yeah, isn't Dom, playing any games. Yeah, because Dom didn't, Dom didn't have any reason or motivation to confront Nick Fury. It was Alex who's like, this is my Sentinel, and you're not fucking with him. So, and I think he said, if you send any more of your agents to spy on him, I'm going to turn their brains into pea soup or something like that. Um, Alex was hostile, so he was angry. And that was something that I think Tony Stark needed. And the, But whereas Dom was like, whoa, this is bullshit. I'm going to warn Tony Stark, but Nick Fury's not my lookout. So it was a little bit different. I wanted to, I, I found that whole thing about that, that plot device of the way, um, uh, Natasha manipulated Tony Stark and enabled, she wrote that report that enabled um, S.H.I.E.L.D. to manipulate him. I've always found that really ugly. So, um, but point of view, I mean, it, point of view can also depend on what you're trying to do in a scene like that. You know, in that scene, in Tony's point of view, the one we're talking about in Center for the Man with Alex, um, in Tony's point of view, because that was actually in Tony's point of view, but in Tony's point of view, he's got someone defending him who is kind of validating him and being on his side unconditionally. And he needs that. 
Um, Alex's point of view would be angrier. Um, Nick Fury's point of view would be kind of angry, but probably also kind of that kind of frustration of feeling powerless and that kind of, and so, and there's going to be a manipulative tone about how do I deal with this guy? How do I counter for him? How, you know, whatever. And so what, which point of view you're in sets a tone. Now, if you've got a dead air scene and you're in court, Tony's point of view is going to perhaps be borderline unreliable narrator, listening to somebody testifying about what happened. Um, because particularly if you're dealing very close to canon with the way Tony is, he's going to be just messed up about the whole situation. Um, he's going to be feeling a lot of guilt, that kind of like inappropriate guilt. He's going to be feeling inappropriate guilt, um, unless he's just balls to the wall angry about the situation, which canon Tony is a little bit difficult to get him to balls to the wall angry. You have to do a little bit more work with him to get him to just furious. Um, but unless he's furious, which can be also a difficult emotional point of view, rage is a difficult point of view to filter a trial through. Um, but if he's got that kind of almost unreliable guilt thing going on, that may not be the tone you want for that scene, in which case a point of view that's more objective and can actually be objective about what's going on with Tony too might be more powerful as the narrator for that scene. Um, so it just depends on what you're trying to do. Like Abby would be a terrible point of view for that scene. I mean, unless you just want like a lot of rampant emotionalism. So it just depends upon what you're trying to convey. If you're trying to convey information, give kind of a balanced perspective, a third party could be good there. If you want to stick with a main character, you just, you know, it all depends upon what you're trying to do. You know, we've we've said it before. Point of view is everything. Because you can take the same thing and tell it from a different point of view. It's completely different. It can the ruin. Can be, mm-hmm. it, can, it can ruin the whole momentum of of your story. And a lot of times, if you're if you're stuck somewhere, um, and you've got that phantom writer's block that doesn't actually exist, the promise, um, with you, it could be a matter of tone or pacing or perspective your um, point of view I had a little hitch when I started writing my bang so I sent um, what I had to Jilly and she said um, and it ended up I see I thought I had a pacing problem and I was like figure out where my pacing problem is because I can't I'm, I'm, I'm blind to it and so she she read it and she was like dude I think you have a tone problem <laughs> <laughs> so I went back, and I did actually have a tone problem, but it was slowing off my pace. It was slowing off. It was like, it was messing me up. And so I fixed it, I think. I, th- I think I fixed it. I mean, I was at 8K when I had my problem, and now I'm at 17, so I, I'm pretty sure I fixed it. Well, you said it felt better immediately as soon yeah. as you wrote, you know, a well, few hundred more yeah. words that it – felt better because it did it did slow that section down a little bit but not in a yeah because when you change tone changing tone takes words so it it effectively did slow things down not in the action literal action but in the flow of the story which was a really good thing right there so the tone did kind of affect the pace yeah and that can happen so sometimes if you're if you're in a place like that um maybe uh maybe change your point of view 
um, and, and see if that helps you or look at your tone and um, look at your um, look at your GMC <laughs> and, and make sure that that you're on track there. And a lot of times you can you can work it out. And if you can't, that's what an alpha reader is for. <laughs> yeah. Some, specifically like the, the vehicle of a court scene. Um, a court scene can be many it, – it can be used for many different things. Um, it can be fast-paced. It can be moving your action just rapidly towards the climax. It could be the climax of your story. Um, it could be more in the rising action um, with more emotional content. It could actually be early in the story, be kind of in that setup plateau. Um, and whose point of view you're in – really changes the tone of that kind of scene um, because it will come across, like let's say you're in a victim's point of view, like somebody who's been a victim of violent crime or um, like the spouse of a child or spouse or child of a murder victim, um, not writing their emotional tone is going to seem disingenuous, but putting it in is slow or it's going to slow down the action in the scene. Now that could work for you, depending upon where you are in your narration, narrative, or it could ruin your pace. So it depends upon what you're trying to do with that scene and what you need to convey. Um, sometimes, especially with victims, you get if you want to convey indignation, you're more likely to get it from the person who's not the victim. So you just kind of have to... You know, it's like I I can't think of why I would... Um, write the court scene I did in Slytherin Black um, for Dumbledore. It wasn't really a full-on trial. It was a hearing to determine if there was going to be charges brought against him. I can't imagine writing that in Dumbledore's point of view. Now, there's a couple of points of view that could work, but I was in a single POV challenge, so it was going to be serious. But I do think it was more powerful in Sirius's point of view, but it would have been faster paced in Amelia's point of view. Um, but I would never write Dumbledore's point of view, that kind of thing, Dumbledore's point of view, because his crazy would just, in that, um, would just, I don't know, unless I want to make the audience really angry. And sometimes you do. Well, sometimes, sometimes you do. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you want to piss the audience off. You want to get them revved up because you want to, if, if something your climax is some sort of denouement on that character, the you know, you want them to feel like, like, immense satisfaction when that character is brought down or brought low or convicted or whatever. So, you know, I just wouldn't write it from Dumbledore's point of view. I can't imagine why I ever would. I can't imagine wanting to write in his point of view. Actually, there's some characters that I just, I can write in the bad guys, the bad guys point of view. I could, that's not a problem, but there's some bad guys or people I typically write as a bad guy that I would not want to write their point of view ever. And he's one. Like, I just don't want to get into trying to justify, even in a fictional sense, leaving a baby on a doorstep. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> so I don't want my head there. And that's not a craft choice. That's a sanity choice. <laughs> it has become a, a choice of you don't want to um, dig too deep into the psyche of a character that's Ugly. Yeah. There's a difference between evil 
and ugly. I would prefer, honestly, to write in Voldemort's point of view before I would want to write heavily in Dumbledore's. I agree. I absolutely agree. Because I understand um, um, uh, Voldemort's evil. I don't approve of it, but I understand it. I cannot fathom Dumbledore. Yeah. And the decision he makes to take a young boy, a young orphan boy, and lead him down a path to suicide. No, it's it's just trying to make sense of that as your character's narration, it would make me crazy. It's like I could write a serial killer, provided there was no sexual sadism component, but I could write a serial killer and not really have a problem with that. Um, I probably wouldn't want to do it a lot, but I could do it. I mean, it's sort of like writing a Dean Koontz novel or something. I don't know. Um, but I couldn't write a child abuser, not from their point of view. I just couldn't do it. So, I mean, there's just some some headspaces I don't want to explore. You know, I'd rather, you know, explore, like, you know, I'd rather explore the, the headspace. That tells you something. I'd rather, about me, I guess, is that I'd rather explore the headspace of a serial killer than a child abuser. But people have different thresholds for that kind of thing. And, you know, you've got to find your own comfort levels with things. I will say, though, like if I were to ever do like a, an, you know, a tribute to that Tony is a serial killer story and write my own Tony is a serial killer thing, um, he would be killing bad people. He'd be very Dexter-ish, right? Because that's easier yeah. for me to get behind than someone who's just, you know, likes to hurt people. That's what I did with my Sherlock one. I mean, he enjoys hurting people. Um, and he only kills people that are bad because otherwise Mycroft won't help him. Kill other people if they weren't boring. They're just boring. Um, and so, but he only kills bad people. <laughs> but that's a really short story. I'm not sure I could actually write a long one. I, I, I don't know. And I don't consider the characters from Dracula serial killers. <laughs> they were like a spree killer. <laughs> they really were spree killers, yeah. 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 Um, Ellie mentioned further up in the chat that they were talking about point of view is that there's a, an episode of MASH that's told from the POV of the patient, specifically a patient who couldn't speak. Um, and I don't think, I think they finally speak at the end of the episode. I don't remember where that episode is in the series. Um, I'm pretty sure it's after Charles is on the show. Um, but that is an incredibly powerful episode and it does stick out in, in people's minds because it's so different. Um, you're usually kind of in this, um, um, TV shows are inherently kind of objective points of view because you're seeing stuff, you, the audience, you know, there's not like a narrator feeding you information. Um, but it's, so, you know, you, you're selectively scene to scene. You're focused on multiple characters, multiple storylines and things moving around. And then you have this episode where it's just, a, it's, well, it's probably a camera in a bed, but you've got a patient in a bed and all of these characters are interacting with this one guy who can't talk. And it's, it's a remarkably powerful episode and its power comes in from its point of view. Because it is, it is one of the rare episodes that is a subjective point of view, right? Um, it is the point of view of of that guy in the bed who can't talk, 
Yeah, those are his first words. He doesn't know what to say. Yeah, Mass is an interesting show in that it was like a it was like nothing and everything. It was it was drama, it was comedy. Um it wasn't whenever it was funny, it was funny because it was that was real, it was life, it was people, not because it was contrived, or at least not you sometimes it was sometimes the funny was contrived, but not usually. They usually attempted to find humor in the way people normally behave in bizarre circumstances. So it was um for its time, I think it was really ahead of the curve. And there's some things they did in that show that I don't think anybody's ever done since. So um, it's probably it's one of my favorite TV shows of all time. There were some characters I hated, but every show has that, the character you can't stand. And unfortunately, all the times it's um, a female character because men don't know how to write women. Uh, well, actually, I think Mash did a better job of that in the sense that, like, the character everybody hated the most was Frank Byrne, and then nobody liked yeah. Charles for a long time. Margaret became better over the course of the show. If you they, the Margaret in the TV show was way better than the Margaret from the movie. Um, the recasting and the re the re the re the reangling. There weren't a lot of female characters in Mash, but there were a couple. Nurse Kelly was great. Um, she never was considered a major player, but she was on the show for a very long time, and I always remember her. Um, I want to say she was Hawaiian in the show. The canon said she was Hawaiian, but I could be wrong about about that. Um, yeah, so they had a lot of competent nurses. It's just they didn't have – I think Margaret was the only um, – you know, major female character in the show. I may be blanking on somebody though, uh, but she was she got better over the course, and I think fans wanted that. I think females fans wanted her to get um, better. Now there were a lot of lieutenants on the show, but they just rotated in and out. Most of the nurses were lieutenants, so but they 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 didn't stay. I think Nurse Kelly was one of the only ones who was long term on the show. On, on the show for many seasons. But they had a lot of men in, who were major characters, whoever the colonel was, um, Radar, Klinger, Hawkeye, BJ, Trapper, Charles, Frank. I mean, the list of male characters, and when you go major female characters, I think there was just Margaret. Oh, Rizzo. So there were... Um, yeah, there were there were some female officers who played a role for a while, but um, for its time, it did a much better job than most shows about uh, handling having any women in the cast in a major role and letting Margaret's character evolve into a better and not keeping her that kind of caricature that she was in the movie. So I thought they did. Uh, I think that if they were to, you know, those same people were to come together now, I think they would do even better. Did anybody else have any questions that I might have missed? I don't think so. I scrolled quite a bit up and I don't see any questions. No, me either. How much background do you think is necessary for switching the bad guy and good guy around by negotiating historical facts 
to support the bad guy as the good guy for a fix-it? And do you think it's better to establish that history in a prologue or by the main character discovering it? Oh, you mean like turning Loki into a good guy? Like switching Loki and Thor around? Is that what you mean? Or it's just, or, or do you mean it's something more like, um, like people had misinformation, and you find out that Loki wasn't the bad guy or something? Um, more Gandalf and Zelda, oh, Ganondorf and Zelda. I don't really know much about. I don't know who those. I don't. Oh, I can't. Give me two different. Okay, so let's say, let's say, okay, let's let's. I'll, I'll pull an example like. Dumbledore and Voldemort. I, I actually struggle with the trope of Voldemort ever being the good guy. Um, but let's say a switcheroo where Dumbledore is the root of he's the one who killed the Potters or some such crazy thing. Um, I think it's more powerful personally to have your main character. Listen to your character's main character's main character is Harry. I think it's more powerful the, the act of discovery than laying the facts out in the prologue. That's my personal opinion. Um, if I was going to write that, oh, oh, I, I just plot bunnied myself. Shit. <laughs> Shit. Well, hell. <laughs> Shadow, shame on you. Okay, so this is how I would write it. Say Harry in his fifth year realizes he just cannot learn from Snape. So he starts, he gets some resources from the library and he learns himself and he starts meditating. And he comes across the memory of his mother's murder. And he watches Voldemort stun her, try to kill him, and fail. Then he watches Dumbledore come in the room, shoot, hit his mother with an AK, and walk out. And he learns this in, from his own memory as a child. That is a very in your face reveal. Yeah, very in your face. Now, I have a actually a story in progress where um Harry did retrieve the memory of his mother being murdered in order to prove um to himself that Sirius wasn't a bad guy. This is before he met Sirius. Um and it's called The Apprentices and um after Harry is revealed to be a parcel mouth and Dumbledore is driven from the school, Dumbledore goes abroad to learn some more about parcel magic, um, and he meets Hero Ito, and he brings Hero Ito back, Ito back to um, Britain when he comes back to teach Harry. Um, and during the course of Harry being Ito's apprentice in Japan, they, this is how I say it in my head, I could be wrong, I don't know. Um, well, it's your character. Only you yeah, can but say it's, it's, like it's actually me. a Japanese name, so I didn't well, make up still, the name. I, mean, I pulled it out of the generator. <laughs> <laughs> How are you saying it? In my head, I say Ito. 
Oh, so I, that could you, be you it. Don't, you don't. Oh, no. So anyway, and um, Dumbledore finds out that Snape's a real. I mean, he just he he finally admits to himself that Snape's being a real asshole to the kids, and um, he resolves to, to do better. I tell impacting him too, you know. So he's like, you know what, you need to. So it is. Mm. Okay, Ito, Ito, Ito. Say it for me. Ito, I, I say Ito. I, I, I can't remember D sound into the D into the T, but I actually don't know how to pronounce. How to we'll look at that later. Anyways, Hero uh, has been impacting um, Dumbledore as well. So Dumbledore goes back to Britain and he lays down the law, and Snape finds out that the Harry has not lived like a prince. And um, he, uh, in, in a way to make amends, he tells Dumbledore that Sirius Black was never a Death Eater. And so it comes to a head that he never had a trial. And Harry um, is being taught uh, by Hero to, um, to, to, to meditate and to build his mental defenses. And he retrieves the memory of, of Voldemort murdering his mother. So that he gets his first look at his godfather, who, and he sees Peter Pettigrew with Voldemort, and he knows that he's he's positive that that his godfather didn't betray him, and that's very important to him um, as a character. But I have that, and now I have this plot bunny, and I'm mad at you. <laughs> well, you know. And- if I if I were to do the discovery thing, in whatever fashion Harry recovers memory, although I really like what Kira came up with about he's learning occlumency on his own, and he finds the memory. If I wanted to go full on reversal of roles, I would probably have a lot of propaganda involved in what the Death Eaters were, and that maybe they didn't even come up with that name, that they were still the Knights of Walpurgis, and they. Somebody had said something about that eating death line, and it was actually somebody from Dumbledore's side that started calling them death eaters. But let's say Voldemort was working on a prophecy where he was prevent the um, death of magic um, because of muggles discovering the magical world, and that he has to protect the child of prophecy. Well, he finds out that Harry is the child of prophecy, and he, it's his, his job to ensure the child of prophecy um, can fulfill their function. That's his function. And um, James and Lily are caught up in the propaganda of Voldemort being the bad guy. And so he doesn't kill either James or Lily. He's going there not to kill Harry, but to take him from these people who are wrapped up in Dumbledore's propaganda. So he's not a good guy because he's doing, you know, really cutthroat things in pursuit of protecting magic. But he's there to take Harry, to abduct him, basically, and does the thing like what Kira said, where what actually happened is that um, maybe there was a um, a spell set in like a, a ritual circle in the nursery that actually is what kill, would destroy Voldemort's body, and then Dumbledore came in and killed James and Lily. And there was no curse shot at Harry. I mean, you could do a complete reversal of roles where Voldemort wasn't involved in the death of his parents in any way, shape, or form. 
and then it was all Dumbledore. But I think, regardless of which way you go with it, it is more powerful for Harry to discover it rather than, this is just my opinion, rather than write a prologue where that scene plays out. I agree. It it really has impact for um, for Harry, uh, and it gives him an immense amount of motivation. And as yeah. much as I am a plotter, I do like to to drive my story with characterization. Um, I like my characters to grow and be motivated and. Um, but then also adhere to my plot points. <laughs> I think it happens to me more than it does you that I hit a, cro- like a, a, a crossroads between plot and characterization. Um, I think that might be, if I were to guess what that is, I would guess that you're better at pre- Predicting the path of your character sometimes than I am. Not that the character's out of my control, but sometimes the ripple effect, that there's tiny ripples of the character's dialogue and choices throughout the story. And even if I have planned what all of those choices are going to be, sometimes the ripple isn't apparent to me until I write the line of dialogue or I have them take the action. And then I go, oh, Mm -hmm. shit, that's completely incompatible with the plot that I've written. And actually, they both existed. Neither one of them was a change. But then I'm suddenly at a crossroads of having to choose between character and plot. And I will always replot over not have my characterization get fucked up. Um, yeah, just, I tend to replot you know, so, but it, or I move my plot points around. I mean, I've already moved um, five plot points around in my QB. And I'm just on plot number, what was it, um, 22? So, yeah. So I, but I think that I run into that, hit that crossroads of where I've hit a conflict between them probably more often than you do. Like I guess I think that, um, I see big ripples pretty well, but sometimes those little tiny ripples are the ones that elude me. And you're really good even at the micro level with ripple effect. So I think that it doesn't. I think that's a function of my OCD. Um, well, I have, our OCDs are different. Yeah. They and, are different. And my and the and I have a very um um in a different way from you and I think that does play into my process a lot yeah oh well I mean it's that that speaks to like my OCD can get really like I can spot a timeline issue it's like what wait no that doesn't work on the timeline and then I'll have to go right. like no and I'll, I'll have to go work and figure it out why it didn't work um but it's just it kind of just it just kind of you know when it comes to craft the OCD expresses itself differently um it's just the same thing the way anywhere in life. There's some things that wouldn't bother me in the slightest that would probably drive Kira batshit insane. Um, you know, but like I have a friend that the only thing she has any kind of like a, com- a compulsive behavior around is partially closed or open anything. A cabinet, a door, nothing can be ajar. It has to be either open or closed. She's very binary about doors, cabinets, anything. So you cannot I have a cabinet closed. Yeah, she has two. Like a cabinet should be shut. But doors can be open or closed. But it has to be one or the other. You can't have it cracked open. It drives her crazy. But that's the I only thing I know her to yeah. be that's something I know her to be compulsive about. 
It's, it has to be. And I'm, even in, when she comes to visit me, if I have a cabinet door that's not shut completely, she'll get up from the couch and go close it. Dude, I have an issue with my husband. He, um, when he when, when he puts cups in the cabinet, he doesn't always turn the handles appropriately, so the so the handle will keep the door from shut. <laughs> Man, that's you just, can't do this. that's just not cool. You can't do this. <laughs> yeah, put the handles just right so the damn door will shut. <laughs> it has to shut. <laughs> I have to admit, I used to troll her. I would. She has this. Um, her desk is in the living room. She really doesn't wear that. She her desk, enormous desk, and um, she also had her entertainment center. Um, and the entertainment center had a sliding door on the front, and the components were behind it. And then her desk had like eight or nine drawers, and and every time I'd visit her, when she was out of the room, I would move either open a drawer a tiny bit or move the slider on the the entertainment center, open a few inches um, to see how long it would, I don't know why, for like two years to entertain me <laughs> to see how long it would take her to notice. Which was terrible. Was it was terrible because I, I had my own OCD issues, but I would still do this. It was, it was just curiosity, like how long is it going to take her to notice that that drawer is open an inch? An inch. Not long, let me tell you, not long. I had a friend who would come into my room in school and move my stuff. And I, she did it twice before I realized she was doing it on purpose. And I caught her in the middle of moving my, my books to the opposite side of my desk. And I asked her, what the hell are you doing? And she, was, um, and she said, yeah. I said, well, don't ever do it again. And she didn't. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I well, I mean, my friend. She event. She eventually. She actually. She knew I was doing it. Um, but I think it kind of almost became a game because I don't think it was about a year in when I didn't get up and do it while she was in the bathroom, and she looked around the room and said, "You didn't move anything. She didn't, you didn't open any drawers or something like that." And I went, "You." And she said it didn't take her more than a few months to figure out that I was doing that. Um, <laughs> but she was trying to you know, it faster and faster just to fuck with me so but I mean in general normal I mean that was I was in my early 20s I was a bit more of a troll back then uh, but now I don't <laughs> I don't I don't mess with people's issues because if when, the moving thing would drive me batshit I, I couldn't handle my stuff being moved around um, but somebody coming into my house and opening up cabinets wouldn't have bothered me so even back then so that was lack of empathy on my part that I was fucking with her. But on the other hand, she knew I was fucking with her um, after a while, and she was fucking with me in return. Um, so I guess she found it kind of harmless that I was only doing that one little thing as opposed well, to, like, I, coming in and opening up every door in her house. That would be, yeah. But, see, there's a big difference between, you know, teasing with your friend and what my, my so-called friend was doing because um, – She knew that it put me in a state of extreme agitation. Mm, and she did yeah. it anyway. She yeah, enjoyed cool. watching me get really upset. Ellie said something in the chat room about doing it to a coworker, doing some look up to a coworker. I had a coworker do that to me once for a week, and I reported him to HR um, for harassment and um, 
psychological abuse. Yeah, with that kind of stuff, you have to be at work. You have to be sure that you're doing it with somebody who, who you know is receptive to what you're doing. Um, it's only a joke and, if we're all laughing. Right. Uh, but, you know, if they're, the minute they're uncomfortable with something you did, like one guy, we, he was on vacation, and we knew he was the biggest prankster in the building, and we knew he'd be fine with this, and I wouldn't have done it if he, we didn't know he'd be fine with it. But we took everything out of his office. I mean, we stripped it bare. And <laughs> locked it, locked it in the closet. And when he got back, he asked, he went to his office and said, and "What the fuck?" And we said, "Didn't you get the email about your transfer?" And he was like, "What?" I'm like, "Yeah, dude, you were transferred to this other group. You're in a whole other building now. They came and got your stuff last week." And he totally bought it, <laughs> but we stopped oh, him before that- he went to the other building. Um, and then he thought it was funny as fuck. But we also did to my boss one year. We, he had an office. Most, he wasn't in a cubicle. Um, we filled his we, – we got a couple of helium tanks, and we filled his office with balloons floor to ceiling. You could not get in. So in order for him to start work, he had to pop balloons to get his desk, hundreds of balloons. We spent hours pranking his office for his birthday. But if he, we didn't know that he would have a good you know, sense of humor about the whole thing, we wouldn't have done it. Um, but the minute somebody objects to that kind of thing, you've got to stop. It was the fact that the guy fucked with you over and over and over again. I mean, yeah, that's harassment. Yeah, I mean, the first time he did it, it was really upsetting. And I was like, you need to stop touching my stuff. And at the time, I had severe germophobia. I've worked myself through that, but I was very young. I had severe germophobia. And he would he would pick up my pen and lick it. Oh, so you have to throw your pen away. There's no yeah, I threw it away. And HR made him buy me a whole box of pens. Actually, I said, actually, I would prefer that he just give me a gift card because I don't want him touching my stuff <laughs> to buy me anything. And I still he am might. that way about my stuff in my cart, which is why I prefer to do self-checkout. Once something goes in my cart, it's mine, and I don't want you touching it. <laughs> you being anybody <laughs> I just I have I have issues <laughs> that's my stuff it's in my cart don't touch it that's right leave it alone also when you check out yourself you can bag things in a way that's not insane yes I bought 30 cans today and you put them all in one paper bag really I know it was nice stacking, but it, I can't lift that. <laughs> That's just pure assholery right there. But no, I do yeah, have issues. I mean, I like that man who told me I should give him that case of um, uh, my husband loved cranberry Sierra Mist. They don't make it anymore. Um, and there were two cases left in the store, and I put them both in my cart. And that man followed me out of the sodas all the way across the store, trying to get me to give him my stuff. That's my stuff. It's in my cart. Once it's in my cart, it's mine. I have issues, obviously. Um, but yeah, I don't like. <laughs> okay, are there any other questions? Questions. Did we answer the question for whoever asked the question about 
was that what you needed? Was it was it Sahara that asked the question about um, converting the guy. villain protagonist, villain and good guy, villain hero inversion? Let's assume we did. Okay, awesome. The main thing I think you need to concentrate on when you're doing something like that is to make your it has to feel genuine across the board, good and bad. If it feels contrived or convoluted, um, it'll come off as uh, just character bashing, which is fun, but that's not, but that's not your goal with something like that. And speaking of character bashing and going back to the first topic, um, in the um, the first topic about things we pick up, um, it's a lot of times character bashing and the way characters are bashed are picked up um, by how other authors in a fandom do it. Um, and it, and it's not even a bash. This isn't even a bashing thing, and it may not be a disliked character. It may be a disliked character, but in a fandom where, let's say, there's a canon um, pairing that people don't like and they want to pair that person with somebody else, um, the fandom might – it might be like the fandom trope, like almost a trope in the fandom, to break that pairing up by bashing the character they don't like. And that that can be very satisfying. But I wonder sometimes if that, like, is such a contagious behavior that people don't stop to think that there might be another way to do it to like break a pairing up without like, especially when you're breaking up a male female pairing and for a male male pairing um, it, that got really old for me really quickly is like bashing the female character. Like she's an, you know, an evil whore kind of thing. Um, and there's ways she can be able without being a whore. Yeah. Well, nothing wrong yeah, with being she, a whore. But, but <laughs> also, yeah, there's, there's ways to break people up without, making the theme, the woman um, the villain or the bad guy. Um, people can break up just because they're not, you know, compatible. It's just, you don't have to trash your character. And maybe you want to, and that's fine, but if it's just something you're picking up through your fandom that I'm going to, you know, bash the fuck out of this character so I can split the, them up. Well, you may not need to. There might be another way. Now, if I turn that lens on myself and I go, this is not a breaking up thing, but I talk about like bashing Ziva, you know. Um, do I do that because Phantom does it or do I do it because I want to? And I kind of critically analyze it. Or do I do it because I want to? And I move on. But at least that's the question. <laughs> I at least look at it. I will forever want to bash Ron Weasley because I think he's an idiot. Well, he, he's terrible. <laughs> terrible. <laughs> But okay, someone asked him the question: uh, Is undoing a death an, enough of a fix? It, I personally think so. Yes. What do you think, Julie? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, what is enough of a fix? It is is it, is there a ripple effect of it? If 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 there's not really much ripple effect from your fix, it's not really thematically a fix. It, I don't think. Um, but 
Or you can't save a character who died in canon and there not be a huge amount of ripple effect. Yeah. Or the ripple unless you do it wrong. Yeah, one of the, it could be one or the other. It could be the rip, your fix ripples out or a change ripples into the fix. There's, there's like two different ways to approach that. And either is great. But the point is, is with a fix it, is there's got to be, there's got to be change. Um, so if you've made a fix and then Canon proceeds pace, I, I wouldn't just exclude it from the challenge because it's up to the author. I think the things he's been pretty, pretty for the most part, hard line about is that if you can articulate what you're fixing, go for it. But you know, if there's if Canon proceeds pace after your fix, like James and Lily, let's say your fix is James and Lily living, I think that's a great fix. It if nothing changes in the story in first year, first year happens exactly the same way. Thematically, it's not really a fix-it story because there's no there's no consequences to that fix, and no ripples, nothing. It's just they're alive, and then nothing changed. Um, Which is how is that even I'm possible? Not, yeah, I'm just not going to sit there and and in terms of the moderation of the challenge, decide what's a fix-it and what's not. Um, the only things we've you know hardline excluded are the anti-fix-it, which I. Which anti-fix-it could be okay if you're, depending on POV, but that's a different discussion. Um, and it's not a fix-it when the thing you're fixing is something of your own making. So if you've created a bunch of problems, fixing those problems doesn't count as a fix-it. Because um, fix-it's about changing canon. And things that are, have no canon elements to them at all wouldn't be eligible for fix-it because there's nothing to fix in a complete AU. Okay. Yeah. Except it's, it's the NCIS cast is Middle Earth. You know, the nope. NCIS cast is Middle Earth. All you've got is characterization. You have no canon to fix. So, um, is where Riddle's mother, Muggle, okay, there's a fix. Is where Riddle's Muggle father searches for him in order to claim him as his son. The ripples are interesting. I agree. That could be fascinating fix it story. Um, because Tom Riddle's, Tom Riddle's father is canon, that he existed as canon. Tom Riddle's childhood, even though we don't explore it much in canon, is canon. So um, if you have the fix, if your change, this could be a change rippling into a fix or a fix rippling into, you know, change, whichever way it goes. If the fix is that his father has a change of heart and goes to uh, find him and raises him, that could have huge repercussions on the world. That could be that could be a huge fix it. So um yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the short one though, I'm not sure it would qualify for the challenge. If you can get 50K out of that, you go for it. So Ellie sends us a little rhyme. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty realized he had a round ass and brought a donut so that he didn't roll off. Um, Again, it's a big thing. I'm just not sure it's a big enough thing. About 50K. If you can get 50K out of him sitting on a, you know, a hemorrhoid pillow. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's an actual story. The but Tom Riddle Sr. Like a, searches for his son. 
Oh, The Glass Serpent and the Dark Horse by <laughs> Kate, Kate Ravensdale. Cade, Cade Ravensdale. Cade, I guess how that Cade is spelled K A E D E. I actually don't know how to pronounce that, but I, I would guess that's Cade. Y'all need names I can pronounce or even mispronounce well. <laughs> if, you, if I know, knew this was an issue at the beginning, the first time she said my name, I would have gone, that's not how you pronounce that. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been like, what? <laughs> As you're already messing me up. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember that podcast. I was like, when she said that's not how you pronounce it, I went, really? I've always pronounced that color name. Um, Azure. Azure. That's how I'd always pronounced it my whole life, and that's apparently not how it's actually. OKD. That's not how, that's not how she pronounces it. <laughs> For all those of you hey, who are wondering, Azure, Azure prefers Azure over Azure. I think it's pronounced. I think that's how you pronounce the color name, too, is Azure. I just was always pronouncing it wrong. I've been in the doing case, it people don't, people don't run around, but in most cases, people don't run around saying that word very often, right? So you read it a ton, but you don't hear it. Right. Like paradigm. 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 You, you got change the paradigm. <laughs> you know how it's really pronounced. It's paradigm. Um, <laughs> we know it's pronounced paradigm. Do not send us emails. <laughs> or for, for fuck's fragile. sake. Is that fragile? It's very fragile. It's very unsmurfy to send us emails trying to correct us. It really gets on my nerves. And some days I don't have a whole lot of nerves left. What's that saying? You know, I woke up this morning, I had one nerve left, and you just got on it? Yeah. But, um, yeah, we got four minutes left. Um, you never were smurfy, Lady Holder. We already know. We know. Your secret is out. She's super unsmurfy. She's very unsmurfy. <sighs> I need to use that line just out of context randomly in a story. That wasn't very smurfy. <laughs> <laughs> I can see Tony saying it. That oh, I could really too. Awesome. He totally would. I really want to do that um, story because we were talking about I read a typo. we got time for this. I read a typo in a story. And I try not to harp about people's typos, but the typo was corporeal punishment as opposed to corporal punishment. Um and man, just that spanking scene just got wrecked. Um, but anyway, so the corporeal punishment, and I was like, okay, obviously a typo, but I really want corporeal punishment to be a thing. How would you implement corporeal punishment? And so I, I throw this out to people on Facebook, and people have really good suggestions. Um, I think the one that made me laugh the hardest was somebody who um, winds up having to go to a meeting when an email would have sufficed. I thought that was fucking hysterical, but <laughs> the um, the 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 more practical um, thing was um, like that. That's what they did to Daniel in canon. It was corporeal punishment. They punished him by making him be corporeal. And so I had I had plotted that story 
where Tony um, dies during dead air, but I mean, he actually ascends. And the, ascend, you know, the, the ascended beings, they don't want to deal with him. They get tired of him really, really quickly. And so they dump him on the SGC. And I now want to write where his first line in the, you know, he appears in the SGC is, what is this corporeal punishment? And now I need to add on that. So he says, that wasn't very smurfy. <laughs> <laughs> that was totally unsmurfy. Actually, Julie did that um, that on a uh, a plot drift early yeah. on. If you go to the radio show page on my site, you should be able to find it pretty easily. Um, where she did a plot drift where Tony ascends. Yeah, and then I just get because I had I had had that idea about Tony dying during Dead Air, but then I was never I could never write it because it was just breaking my heart or not write all of it. I started it, but broke my heart. Um, and then I said, what if he ascends instead? And we did a little plot where he ascends. And then they just don't want to deal with him. They're like, fuck this. We're not putting up with this guy. And they dump him on the SGC. He's really unsmurfy. That, <laughs> that was unsmurfy. <laughs> and everybody, no, never mind. We we know why you sent him down. Sorry about that. We're down to a minute. We will. Today, what's, what is it? What the fuck? What is the fuck today? Today is, today is it was it's Wednesday. Wednesday. Now it's Thursday. Okay. It's technically it's Thursday Wednesday now. Wednesday for me. <laughs> it's Thursday. It's Wednesday. Anyway, we'll see you definitely on Friday, maybe tomorrow. Um, be thinking about topics and um, uh, stuff, and we'll talk to you guys later. Uh, say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone. Jillian.